All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we talk to innovative founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, we have a very, very special guest in James Gallagher, who is a researcher at Career Karma, but also has his, have his hands in several different ISA, Income Share Agreement, projects. And I'm so stoked to have you on the show. James, welcome. How is it going? Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I have been following you on the internet for a little bit and reading some of your writing, and I've been really fascinated with the things that fascinate you, honestly. So let's just, to get started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, and then we can dive into different areas of, of things that you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess my background is uh, more of an unconventional one than you may hear about. I mean, um, when I was eight, I started coding. And for years, I was programming, I was learning various different technologies and frameworks. And then um, there was a point where I just thought that that wasn't the type of life that I was interested in leading. So after a bit of self-exploration and a bit of thinking, um, last year, I ended up coming across this idea of an income share agreement. Um, and I found out about it through Lambda School and I'm reading about Purdue University and it was just so interesting to read about this one document that could um, really fundamentally change not only the way in which we finance education but could also improve the quality of education to ensure that everybody, everybody's getting a fair bargain out of their education that if they're spending 10 or 15 or $200,000 however much on a boot camp or a college um, degree for all four or six years or whatever you're doing and um, that we could change all of that with one document so um, about mid last year I found out about ISAs and then I thought there is just something really interesting in this one topic and um, I had heard from many of my friends and so on that the best thing to do especially when you're young is to dip your toes into many different buckets and try and become an expert on as many different things as you can so I decided last year that I wanted to focus on ISAs. And this year was really the year where I brought that to fruition. Um, I've been researching at Career Karma recently, well, for the last few months now, focused on coding boot camps and also ISAs. Um, and just to um, give your audience kind of a um, brief introduction to the concept, um, the idea is that instead of um, instead of paying for your education up front, you would say pay a share of your future or post-graduation income to a school or to a service provider in exchange for the impact they've had on your life. So for example, Lambda School, you don't need to pay anything up front to go there. You can, you can pay $20,000 or you can enter into their income share agreement option. And through that option, you will only pay 17% if you're in for two years and only if you're earning over $50,000 and this concept appealed to me so much I thought why not spend most of my time on it so right now I'm focused on researching from um, kind of not only a market research perspective but also more academic to try and figure out the economics behind this idea how can we bring it to a larger scale and how can we use this idea to really change the way we finance education which has been which right now is an archaic system which is fundamentally broken Broken and is in need of disruption. Yeah, I think that you picked a very, very fast moving and interesting topic to, to dive deep into. Income share agreements, you know, they only got started, uh, uh, they only kind of were popularized in the States um, just a couple of years ago. Can you kind of tell me what has happened 
in the last, let's say, half a decade um, to go from, you know, back in 2015, no one knew what they were. And now they're kind of, they're, they're everywhere. And I'd love to hear kind of where you think they're going for the next half a decade. Yeah, absolutely. So let's split that up into two different parts. So I would agree with the idea that um, kind of the modern day income share agreement market only really came only really came about in about 2016, which was when um, Purdue University launched their Back a Boiler ISA fund. And that's when we, we one major institution stepped up and said, okay, we're actually going to try this concept. Now, there, there were actually historical antecedents there. And the idea was actually um, thought about by the economist Milton Friedman in 1955 and there were a few experiments before that and in 2011 App Academy launched an ISA but really most of the activity has been in the last three or four years or so um, and I think the main reason that ISAs have become more popular now is that people are becoming more dissatisfied with the current system with the status quo and um, so ISAs one of their major applications is in changing the way we finance higher education um, this quarter we just passed over 1.6 trillion dollars of outstanding student loans and um, it's growing at a continuously um, a large rate and we're seeing that more and more people are being burdened with student loans and it's not only these balances of 50,000 but it's also these balances of 10 and 5,000 dollars which people are still struggling to afford because they're facing low wages or they had to drop out or their college degree just didn't pay off as much as they would have liked. So um, we're seeing that people are just dissatisfied with the system where they're taking out all of these loans and there's, no, there's not even a guarantee that they graduate. Um, and I think people are seeing ISAs as a way of kind of tuition insurance, I guess. You only pay if you succeed after graduation. And that's something I feel as if, I feel as if so many people around the US and around the world really do have a personal story with student loans or know somebody who does. And hearing about this idea that you don't have to worry about loans, but rather you only pay if you succeed, that really changes things and makes people feel more invested in the quality of their education. And um, so that's one major reason I say it's become more popular. Um, and secondly, we're seeing that there is more of a push toward accountability, especially in higher education. But this also applies to coding boot camps where they have a shorter track record, they're not accredited, and there's still a lot of experimentation going on. And some people think, okay, a boot camp is illegitimate and it just doesn't make sense. You'll never get a good job after that. But if you introduce this like, concept of an ISA, you can say, okay, you will only pay if you succeed. And that creates this system of aligned incentives where the school is in incentivized to focus on what will make you most successful. So we're seeing that colleges which have adopted this model have become more focused on how do we actually get people to graduate, how do we make them more likely to succeed, and how can we provide them with that support. Um, and I think a great example of this in practice would be, again, to look at Lambda School. Just this week they launched a mental, uh, mental health services for their students. So if you're a student or even a Lambda School faculty member, you can receive um, a mental health um, support and counseling um, to help guide you through your journey and to help you reach your greatest um, state of success, I guess. And that, is that has only been made possible because Lambda School is really invested in the success of their students. And it's not just a metaphor, it's literal. If a student doesn't succeed, that actually hits their balance sheet directly and they can see an immediate impact of that. Um, and that will continue to go on as well because the student isn't making payments and then the ISA 
let's say, expires, and then Lambda School realizes, okay, something has to change if students are failing. So we're seeing that this is resulting in um, schools taking a more student-centric approach to education. And if you're spending all of this money on a boot camp or a college experience, why shouldn't things be that way? And um, so I think those are really the two main reasons which I say has become more popular. Um, but I think um, to answer your second question there about where ISAs are going, um, there's many different answers for this question. Um, but I think there's really two or three different paths we can expect. Um, the first is that ISAs could just fizzle out and fail to disrupt education financing. We could see there's too much legislative um, problems or uh, the general public outside of the whole Silicon Valley bubble or outside of a few communities just say, okay, this is unethical, or I don't like this idea, or there's just a problem with it, and we are seeing a few people do have legitimate objections to this model. Um, so the, the idea of an ISA may fizzle out. But I think um, another more, well, uh, more viable um, outcome would be that ISAs continue to disrupt education financing. So I think we will start to see more and more coding boot camps offer ISAs. Um, uh, by my count, we have about 40 to 45 coding boot camps offering ISAs now. And that's not only in the US, that's in the US, that's India, that's um, Germany, that's the UK, that's Canada, that's Af um, some African countries. Um, and it's really great to see this concept become broader and seeing more um, takes on how we can implement this. So I think ISAs will become more popular in boot camps, but also colleges as well, where I think they're the true potential biases can be seen because of this problem of a growing student debt budget and the fact that this is actually a political issue. Bernie Sanders and Senator Warren all have ideas for free college or debt forgiveness. Um, Kamala Harris has a plan for um, forgiving loans for uh, entrepreneurs and disadvantaged communities. Every Democrat, well almost every Democrat has a plan for this but how are they going to pay for it is the big question. But with ISAs, we don't have to worry about major government spending or intervention. We can let schools actually um, kind of assure people of the quality of their education, because if students don't succeed, that school just simply can't function financially. And um, so I think also in colleges, we will see this because there's even more people on Capitol Hill talking about Accountability. How do we actually make colleges accountable for costs in a, in a time where uh, colleges are buying massive um, sports stadiums or they're spending all of this money on bigger libraries or better dorm rooms? Um, and it, some of this spending is just ridiculous. And there is no proof that a lot of these things actually has any impact on academic success. I mean, a slightly better dorm room with um, a bathroom in each room might make people happier and might make them a little bit more successful. But going way over the top, we can't say that that is actually an investment in somebody's career and their success. So I think ISAs we will also see in the future, they become more popular in colleges where accountability is a major problem. It aligns the incentives of schools and institutions and ensures that everybody is on the same page with their education. Um, and I mean, I think a big part of this is um, gonna relate to legislation. How does the government get involved? We're already seeing some activity there, um, but those are probably the main likely outcomes. Either ISAs fail to disrupt higher education and bootcamp financing, or they become almost the default now. And we're already seeing in bootcamps, ISAs have become so popular that they are starting to become the default. And I think we can only expect based on past performance that this will continue in the near future. 
It's funny you, you say that last point. I'm actually sitting in a galvanized right now in Phoenix, Arizona, and a year ago, they, they never they weren't doing ISAs, and I walk in today and I see all their marketing copy is, oh, pay after you get a job. It's, it's really a movement, which is, which is incredible. Yeah, I would agree with that. And indeed, Galvanize did just announce their ISA program. And I mean, I think there's been about three or four ISA launches this month. So the rate of these programs actually launching um, ISAs as a financing mechanism is continuing to accelerate. Yep. Something that I'm interested in kind of hearing your thoughts on is, let's say ISAs keep working and they grow in popularity. Is this the kind of the death of the current state of universities and these state schools will sift away and where, and then kind of Lambda school, Microverse, Flockche, these are the new university of the, of the new age? Or do you think that the public education system and colleges will, will compete and catch up? Yeah, well, I think um, my kind of main answer, because I get asked this question a lot, and a lot of people think that when I talk about this method, um, the method of an ISA, they think, okay, we're going to have to make traditional universities obsolete because they are focused on liberal, liberal arts majors or majors in communications and all of these subjects where there aren't actually a lot of jobs for people to go into and where uh, career prospects may not be as promising. However, um, moving to this uh, model of financing doesn't actually mean liberal arts are going to go away. I think rather it's going to make universities focus more on what careers actually have jobs. I mean, in the US last year, tens of thousands of people graduated um, from history, uh, undergraduate history programs and got their degrees, but there were only a few thousand open jobs in history. So why are there so many programs focusing on history when there's nowhere near enough jobs to actually fit that demand. So I think ISAs will really bring us to a point where universities are focusing their capital and their energy and their services on majors where job prospects actually exist to ensure that after you graduate, you're getting a good job and you're using that degree you've spent so much time with. Um, and I mean, I think liberal, uh, the role of liberal arts may change as well. I mean, Lambda School, for example, has integrated some things like personal finance into their curriculum. And a few other boot camps are starting to incorporate various liberal arts concepts into their programs because they want to not only create just um, a great software engineer or a great salesperson but also a more well-rounded individual and that was really the main pitch we hear for the liberal arts it's not just about learning about history but learning about society as a whole and your role as an individual um, and your role as a citizen and so on and so I think um yeah, I think ISAs will result in uh, some colleges maybe dropping some history programs or communications majors here and there. That may happen, but I think that's going to happen anyway because people are asking for more job-driven degrees. They're asking to um, enter into programs where job prospects do exist. So I don't think this is necessarily something that ISAs will fundamentally change. I think it will be the confluence of, this, of uh, student demands changing and also this move towards more accountability in higher education. Of course, um, ISAs would be a part of that too. Um, but I, I am kind of bullish on the idea of incorporating liberal arts into boot camps. And there are actually some colleges using the boot camp model to help combine liberal arts and traditional uh, computer science education into one program. 
So by no means do I think that the traditional university will die out. I think we will just see a new generation. And I mean, universities have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years now. So I cannot credibly say that boot camps, which have been around for 10 or 20 years or so, uh, even less than that actually, can disrupt this model of education and complete and make it completely obsolete. So there are some promising things to happen, but this is by no means the death of higher education. So I want to change the topic slightly to go to something that, that you were involved with earlier this, this year or last year uh, called, called Pioneer. And I'm, I'm actually going to read a, a tweet from Daniel Gross about Pioneer. When I saw this tweet, I was super just interested and it's a mind-blowing tweet. What it says is that Pioneer is Harvard, but in reverse. We pay you if you're good, um, which is just so interesting. I would love to hear your kind of thoughts on the Pioneer model. And then I'd love to hear like, what was your experience in Pioneer and where do you think that plays in the future of education, the future of access? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I graduated from the inaugural cohort of Pioneer, which was actually in August last year. Um, and it was announced um, actually about a year ago, give or take a few days. Um, and I mean, I, I fairly enjoyed my experience in Pioneer. It was um, the way which it's positioned is kind of like a game for productivity, where you're immersed in the system where there's a leaderboard you are and um, kind of there's a peer evaluation system where each week you're expected to post progress updates and share with the entire pioneer community mm -hmm. what you've accomplished what you hope to accomplish and what challenges you face and i mean i would concur with uh, their and positioning of the product as a tournament for productivity. I mean, when I participated um, at the time I was working on a developer tools project, um, I found it just so interesting, this model. And each week I was turning up and writing these progress updates because it was, it was, it was really interesting to be able to um, submit updates to a community of people who were actually sitting down and writing personalized comments back to me. Sometimes that was just a well done, but sometimes it was, hey, check out this resource or hey, this may be helpful. Um, and I mean, Pioneer has changed a lot over time. They've become an well, they've become more community driven, I guess. Um, but I feel as if the model is is very interesting. But um, I think one thing to note is that Pioneer isn't a replacement for education. I think rather it's a, it's, um, it's a supplement to existing communities for ambitious people. Um, I mean, uh, uh, Daniel's tweet, which I liked um, about Pioneer being similar to Harvard, um, I think a lot of that comes from the alumni effect of Harvard and Pioneer being relatively similar. I mean, everybody who goes into Pioneer goes through a shared experience. They all show up not knowing very much about the process and they submit progress updates, they meet other people, they uh, hold each other to account and get all of these and um, various different perks associated with um, being in the, um, in the Pioneer system, like um, kind of talking with people on this frequent cadence or Pioneer, uh, the Pioneer houses and so on. Um, but Harvard also has a similar community. When you graduate, you're, you're Harvard for life. You can name drop that college all you want. And you've got this alumni community where if you say to somebody, hey, I'm from Harvard, you are too, right? They're definitely going to say, yes, I am. And you've got common ground to discuss uh, something with that person. And you can use that to develop relationships or advance your career or whatever else. So I think Pioneer at its core is just a major community. They're focused on identifying the best young talent, the ambitious outsiders 
leaders of the world, as Daniel Gross so eloquently put it, and, and bringing them all into one place so they can share ideas, they can collaborate on projects together, and ultimately, we're, we're trying to, they're trying to build this effect of uh, the Pine, uh, well, the Harvard alumni community, but in technology for people who are not served by the traditional systems, the people who are writing research papers in their spare time, or the coders from England, uh, rural England, um, who have never been to a big city before, but want to explore the, uh, coding in more depth. So I think it is really an engine for talent and identification. And I mean, after becoming a pioneer, um, the experience of being able to talk with all of these people in one community, all of the other pioneer winners was really interesting. And then um, it only made me more bullish on the idea of these community aggregators, these um, platforms or people which find the best talent and bring them into one room. I mean, I've had countless great and in-depth discussions with pioneers over the last few months and well over the last year really because we all connected on the fact that we're pioneers we've been through the same process and yeah it was a really great experience and um, I mean I don't think I would be where I am today without the whole pioneer experience both in terms of accelerating my productivity but also in being able to say I am a pioneer and being able to use the status which that confers if it so exists in some places. So I have a couple more questions for you. Keeping on the young, ambitious person side, something that, and kind of combining that with ISAs, do you see a future where, let's say I, let's say, you know, I'm 30 or 35 and I've amassed like a little bit of money and I find, you know, a very young, ambitious person that I'm like, I don't know what that person's going to end up doing, but they're going to be successful and I want to help them get there. Is there such a thing as ISA for, for people and you, and you invest in a person and then you get a, a like an, almost a return of their future earnings. Is that a thing or do you think that will be a thing in the next decade? Yes. Well, I actually, there was a product which launched on a product a few weeks ago, I believe, which was um, experimenting with this concept. I'm not really super um, invested in their structure, but I do think it is interesting because the underlying principle, I think that there are so many people who know other talented people who would actually love to get a stake in their future success, to be able to provide them with the resources they need to succeed and essentially become their advocate who kind of gives them capital, sure, but also support and mentorship and helping, well, celebrating their wins, helping them when they've been struck down by a major challenge and need to get back up again and yeah I feel as if in the future we will see more of these platforms I mean right now unfortunately unfortunately this concept doesn't really exist um, I mean the best way which you can invest in young talent is to invest in their companies but that in itself is quite restrictive because not all ambitious people want to start a company a lot of them are researchers or they're writers like me um, and they don't really fit into this traditional Silicon Valley model I guess so um, I think a good, I think it could be viable I think the idea of advancing people capital and then kind of gaining a share of their um, a share of their income maybe two or three years later could work but I think the question is how do we balance returns there how do we ensure that these young people are actually getting a, a fair deal essentially because if you like you could invest in the next um like the way I like to think about it is that um, if you invested in Elon Musk when he was 18, before he got involved with PayPal or SpaceX or Tesla, you would be able to get a massive upside. And that upside would 
be greater than you could have received by investing in any of those companies because you invested directly in the source, Elon Musk. But um, I think that it could work. But if you, even if you find some promising young people, perhaps they aren't Elon Musk caliber and just live a moderately successful life somewhere, then your returns would be different. So. I feel like um, the, I feel like um, an ISA model here might not work from an economic perspective unless somebody is really good at aggregating talent. Um, so the model I like to propose instead is a system moving toward more of these micro grants, like Pioneer, for example. So Pioneer, when you um, win Pioneer, you receive a one thousand dollar grant and you receive some money in Stellar Lumens as well, which is I believe locked up for a few years. Um, and all the, you can use that money for whatever you want, buying coffee buying a new laptop and um, spending on a domain name or just um, helping you kind of cover a few of your costs as you develop your app or do your research or whatever and these grants can empower young people to do better things and spend more of their time on their ambition really and focus on the projects that they're interested in and your return in exchange for doing that say you could take maybe a percentage of their company if they do that or if they become a musician you could take maybe two or three percent of their sales uh, royalties or maybe less whatever depending on uh, the, the talent that you've done uh, that you've uh, helped uh, nurture here um, but I think that that model could work um, and rather than kind of binding it to an ISA you say uh, you will only kind of give me something like equity or royalties if you are extremely successful and Pioneer is showing that this model has a potential to work it's just all about finding the right talent and being able to and kind of aggregate all of these people into one place so you can make these strategic grants into them and kind of nurture their success from the earliest stage. It's a fascinating world that you're painting and I, I think it would be it would be great. I think what, you, what it is is just democratizing opportunity if someone you know has it and they just don't have access if there are these systems to give them access or help them get access that changes the game. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, um, like um, something like a $1,000 grant from Pioneer could change someone's life. I mean, if I were to be living, say, in Greenland with a laptop in a sparsely populated town, that money could go a really long way in helping me pay for a domain name, helping me host a website and helping me get started. Because one of the things I loved so much about the internet is that it's made it so easy to launch new projects. I mean, almost yep. any young person now who's 18 or in, living in a basement or whatever can launch their own company. It's just so easy to do so sign up to stripe atlas in two weeks you've got an entity and you can get working on whatever um, whatever your passion is and because it is so easy it means that small amounts of money can really change people's lives and so i see pioneer as a vehicle for democratizing access to opportunity indeed and i think um it's not just about the money it's about providing that continuous support to somebody and also saying i believe in you providing them with the validation they need to pursue their passion knowing that somebody's on the same team, team as them and knowing that somebody says okay I believe in you so much I'll give you $1,000 and to a millionaire or a billionaire that doesn't seem like much but to this person in Greenland that would mean a lot and that could actually change their life and make them think even just a little bit bigger about the world um, so yeah I would concur. Well, you spend a lot of time thinking about these really I would say futuristic topics and themes like ISAs investing on people boot camps and it's really interesting to hear you talk about all of it um, I'm kind of curious are there any other areas uh, 
that you spend time thinking about that you haven't already mentioned that just kind of interest you, whether it be things happening now or industries of the future? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think um, like ISAs and coding boot camps are my main are my main focus here. But um, I feel as if one thing I've been reading a lot about lately, but I haven't done as much writing on, is this idea of um, non-technical boot camps. Like right now, most coding, most boot camps are coding boot camps. And I mean, when you mention the term boot camp, the first thing that comes to most people's minds in this whole tech ecosystem is coding boot camps. And rightfully so, that does make sense. There's a lot of them around around well there's hundreds of them based all around the world and but there are also there's also the potential to use this model for other careers too we have boot camps which are helping train people to become mechanics or to train people and um, in various different areas like flock and um, flock just doing sales we're seeing other companies are doing these um, different subjects and ultimately the kind of they're using the essence of the boot camp but applying that to different industries they're using the idea that they were accelerating people's learning. You're learning what you need to know to break into a career in three, six or nine months. And during that time, you're not gonna learn all of the unnecessary stuff that, they, that universities put into tests to fill out the curriculum. You're gonna learn the exact skills you need to pursue a career in that industry. Um, you will learn practical skills, the things you need to know, so that when it comes time to actually head into an interview, you have a lot to talk about and you have the exact skills they're looking for. Um, so in like this model has been so, uh, so successful in programming because there's a massive skills gap. There's hundreds of thousands of tech, um, tech, jobs in tech which are open in the US right now um, and they just can't fill them fast enough. And so the bootcamp industry rose up to help fill in some of that demand, to help ensure that employers can um, kind of access the people they need to grow and scale their companies. And most people just can't afford to do a four-year university degree, not only in the context of capital, but also in the context of the amount of time they need to invest into that. That's four years of their life. But a boot camp, you can do that in six or nine months and learn all of the practical skills you need. And by the end of the year, you could break into a job with a 60K or 70K salary when you were only earning 30K before your boot camp. And before you know it, you've already paid off your ISA or whatever. And that's you. You're, in a, you're gainfully employed in a good job. And um, you're, you're just really doing your, you're following your passion, really. And my thinking is that why should that be confined to coding boot camps? If you're interested in sales or engineering or um, being a mechanic or welding, you should be able to go to an academy which, which leverages the boot camp model. You learn in six or nine months the practical skills you need, then they help you get a job. And um, so that's kind of one of the main things I've been thinking about because I think these smaller educational institutions are going to pave the way for our future of work. I mean, um, I talk a lot about workforce development and I think what we're seeing now is that um, the, the nature of learning is changing. Traditionally, in the 1950s, if you were to pursue a law degree, I could pretty reasonably assume you would spend the rest of your life as a lawyer. But now that's definitely not the case. Not only are people changing jobs more frequently, but people are also, there's also, well, it's easier for people to access education so, so that they can actually change careers, not just jobs to a different employer or not moving into kind of a tangentically related career. You can change from a job in medicine to a job in tech. 
So this model of a bootcamp can help you do that in an accelerated way. And I think um, we're only going to see more people enter this ecosystem. Um, and I think really the main challenge that we're trying to solve right now is that there's all of these people in Silicon Valley and, and well, in the whole Silicon Valley ecosystem, I guess, who are enrolled in boot camps. That's great. But the next question is, how do we scale this up for the rest of the world? Lambda School's doing a great job here because their bootcamp's remote. You can chime in from anywhere in the world. You have people from Scotland, you have people from England, and all around the world enrolled in Lambda School, even though they're based in the US and they're learning um, while they're working or they're spending full-time learning from their computer. Um, and that definitely plays a major role in it. But how do we get the um, how do we get the 25 year old waiter in Arkansas? How do we get him to enroll in a coding bootcamp when he's probably never heard of the term before? Um, so that's really the next question we should be asking. How do we bring this type of education to other people who may not, well, who are not immersed in this technical ecosystem? How do we educate the next generation of people in an efficient manner so that they don't have to rely on universities and spending four years there? But how do we actually get this, um, this idea of a bootcamp to them? Because I mean, if I were to mention to a few of my non-technical friends coding bootcamps exist, I know that many of them would probably at least look at the coding bootcamp. Some may even enroll because they're so interested. But if I, if I hadn't told them about it, they wouldn't know. So that's kind of one major question I think needs to be answered around this idea of coding bootcamps and skills academies more broadly and non-technical um, roles. My, my last question for you before we wrap it up is, you know, you're, you're a relatively you know, young guy and you have kind of through the internet, you're, like you're finding success and you're, and, you're, and you're getting known for what you're interested in. What advice would you have for any, you know, any young person um, or, you know, or older person listening to this podcast who, who has an interest, who wants to get started, who wants to get known for something, but doesn't necessarily know the best first step to kind of get started on that path. Yeah, well, I think um, if, uh, if I were talking more broadly to both younger and older people, I think the best thing I would say is that um, you shouldn't just think that your job is your life. Your job may be a massive part of your identity, but it isn't your whole life. If you are interested in writing in your spare time, try and make 20 minutes free in your day just for writing. And the important part is, isn't just doing that for one day or two days a month, but showing up every day. I mean, um, earlier this year, I committed to writing on my blog every day. Now that eventually fell through because work at Career Karma kind of took over there, but I have continued to write almost every day this year. And the, the practice hasn't been writing a perfect essay. It's been showing up every day. And because I'm publishing this writing on, a, on such a frequent cadence, people are, it's kind of become my serendipity vehicle, people refer to it as. Um, the idea that when people look at my name on Google or whatever, they can see all of these essays I've written. And then some people think, okay, this is interesting. I'll reach out to this guy. And over time, the, the benefits of this compound. So I think the major piece of advice I have is if you're interested in anything, really, you should try and figure out how do you get started today, not tomorrow because that's only putting something off to the future and tomorrow is a dangerous word we can just let things go and um, in a few months we realize we've made no progress but if you can commit today to actually uh, pursuing a passion even if it is just for 20 minutes over time the benefits of that can, uh, can compound and they can grow quicker and quicker as you continue to get better and that 20 minutes a day you spend writing 200 words for, for a blog could end up becoming your full-time job in the future 
Um, but my second piece of advice, which is tailored more towards young people, is that um, I wouldn't hold too much stock in what high school teachers say. Now, th this, um, I mean, I, I, can, I need to add a few things to this piece of advice, but um, one of the things I think is important to note is that um, there, there are these people in many high school classes who say, why are we learning this? What is the purpose of doing this? And I mean, some of those people are just kind of being rebellious, but some of them are actually doing this because they're frustrated with the current system. And so the thing that I should say is that um, if you are young and ambitious, you shouldn't let what a high school teacher says um, stop you from pursuing whatever you find interesting because um, I mean, when I was in high school, I knew that teachers just weren't very interested in a lot of the things that I was interested in. They didn't know that writing online could be a career. They didn't know about independent research. They didn't know about any of that. And so they'd done the best they could. They gave me the advice, go to university. But my, the way that I interpreted that was, I don't want to go to university. I already have an idea of what I want to do. And I think I can make this work if I follow my gut and do things the way I think is right. So I, I guess if you know that um, you are right about something, you shouldn't let a high school teacher discourage you from pursuing that career. And I mean, I think most advice in general is not really that great because it's either somebody telling you and um, telling you something they would have liked to hear or telling you something um, that would have prevented them from making a mistake in the past that they've already made. But the problem is that's advice for them. That's not advice for you. So most of the best advice you will ever hear actually comes from yourself. It comes from your mind telling you what you should be doing because nobody knows you better than you. So why should you let a high school teacher um, dictate your career path when you already know that you have an idea of what you want to do? Um, and I guess my final piece of advice is that um, if you are young and ambitious, there are actually communities out there to help you. I mean, um, I one of the things which I've made a priority over the last year is to help immerse myself in a great community of ambitious young people. Now, part of that's been Pioneer, part of that has just been tweeting frequently and meeting people through Twitter. And indeed, I actually got the job I have today through Twitter. Um, and I think we, really we can't underestimate the importance of building these communities um, and the way I like to articulate it is that when you're young and ambitious your your main goal aside from pursuing your passion should be to build your own personal community of advisors of people of friends of people who are similar to you now I surrounded myself with very ambitious people and now every day when I go onto Twitter I can talk to people who are just as ambitious as me and um, more ambitious in many cases and to kind of see the world in similar ways to me. And when I talk to these people, I feel empowered to continue doing my own thing. And they provide me oftentimes with some great counsel about how I should improve write, uh, some of my writing or improve um, something that I've done, or maybe uh, make a suggestion about an idea I could pursue in the future. Um, and all of this has been because I've spent a lot of time building this community of people who can support me over time. Um, and I mean, no great um, innovation has ever been done um, by just a single individual. It's been the manifestation of many uh, people's work towards one common goal. And that doesn't exist, that, um, that principle doesn't just apply in the context of innovations and science and technology, but it also applies to your personal development. If you surround yourself with 10 ambitious people, you're naturally gonna become more ambitious because you want to fit into your social circle. 
these people are ambitious, you want to be similarly ambitious. So you become ambitious and the same, uh, the same could apply to any personal characteristic, I guess. So yeah, my final piece of advice there would just be to build your personal community and to hang out with the people that you find interesting. And um, if you are spending all of your time with people who don't understand your ambition, then perhaps you should consider creating an account on Twitter or looking for communities like Pioneer so that you can talk with people who understand the world the way that you see it um, and so that you feel encouraged to continue to pursue whatever ambitions you may have. And that advice actually applies to anyone, not just young people, but um, anyone at any stage in their career. And I think it's never too early to start with these things. If you want to make a change, then take some time to think about how you can make that change, build your community and get started today, even if it is on just a small task. I appreciate you coming on to the podcast. You are a wealth of knowledge, very talented on, on all of these things. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing kind of what you write on next and watch you document what's happening, you know, with the ISAs and, and watching the future unfold. So thanks again for coming on to the podcast, James. Absolutely. It's been great to be interviewed.